0: Yesterday at the Magnuson house we had a small little dispute over the topic of value. The subject was a grill, a two burner gr- gas grill that we had we've had for several years. Um, our neighbor two houses down had a, an estate sale and were selling Something like a $1,500, uh, uh, what $1,500 grill for about 50 bucks. So we took it, and then we had a leftover one. And you don't need two grills, and we didn't need a second grill. And so we were thinking about how best to get rid of it. And Tabitha said, "You know, you just gotta. We're just, we're just gonna give it away. Just gonna put it out on the curb and say free." I'm saying, I mean, come on, this is this is a two-burner grill. It's been great. It's a really good brand, a good manufacturer. We've gotten a lot of use out of it. It's terrific. No, we got to sell it for something. And so Tabitha pulls up the secondary market for gas grills. Tell your friend, it didn't look great. It didn't look great on on the secondary market. And she said, see, look at this one. This is going for like nothing. And I say, okay, fine, fine is usually right, and so I said, fine, and I'm just kind of protesting though, right? I mean, we're just not getting value out of this thing. We could be selling this, I don't know, for a hundred bucks or something. And so sure enough, Lars and I truck it out to the driveway, and we leave it out there with a big free sign. It's still there this morning. I'm sure if it said hundred bucks on it, it would be gone, right? It would have been gone already, but no... No, and, and, But do you, know, you, you want to know what's worse to add insult to injury? Is that someone took the cover for the grill. Someone literally took the cover for the grill and left the grill. And I know when I go home this afternoon... Tabitha is never going to give me the end of it. She's up in the nursery now. Hopefully she's not tuned in. But I'm just ready. There's going to be crow that's being eaten, right? I was wrong. It was a question of value. And someone came by and thought that cover is more valuable than the grill is itself. One man's trash is another's treasure, right? We, we, we all know that. Now you say, why are you starting here? Well, one, the first reason is to say, if you're in the market for a two-burner gas grill, I've got a terrific deal for you, okay? And you can, you can see my address, um, find it afterward. Second reason, the 11 verses that we read this morning are all about value. What something is worth It's at the end of the verses that we read, that Paul read for us this morning. When Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples, who spent three years with him already of ministry, has seen what he has done, has seen his miraculous power, has seen his divine, compassionate love toward everyone, who sees God in the flesh. says, what is Jesus worth? He's worth 30 pieces of silver. In my bank account. Actually, this goes back to an Old Testament prophecy that in that day, 30 pieces of silver was what you'd give for a slave. What was Jesus worth to Judas? A slave's price. And he collects the 30 pieces of silver and starts looking for an opportunity to betray God Himself in the flesh. Not a very high value. And then we see in the few verses before it, we see another kind of valuing. We see a woman who has the most priceless heirloom that she possesses. A bottle of perfume. And we'll talk about the value of this perfume in a little bit. And she breaks the bottle and she pours it all over Jesus' head and all over his feet. And in fact, Judas, the guy who was going to betray Jesus, was so offended by this use of resources that what does he say? Well, look with me in verse number four. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste? She wasted it. Waste is a question of value. Do you know when you throw something in the trash, you're saying, this has no value to me or to anyone else anymore. You don't waste things you throw in the trash. They have no value. Did I waste the value of my gas grill by putting it out in the curb? No, it clearly does not have enough value where someone wants to take it for free. It is not a waste when it has no value. And by contrast, when it has extraordinary value, and it is given to something that you don't perceive as having a value that is significant enough to receive it, you say, why'd you waste it? You see, this is all about value. And also I start here because this question of value explains, I think, why this story is here in the first place. I'll let you compare the two passages and do some homework on your own. But maybe you noticed when Paul was reading That John chapter 12 says six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany and this happened. And now we're here in Mark 14, and it begins in verse 1, after two days was the feast of the Passover. Do you know Matthew and Mark aren't actually putting this story in chronological order? This story actually appears to have happened before Jesus even came into the Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. Do you still remember that? How many weeks ago did we study that? It actually happened before that. You say, well, why why are Matthew and Mark putting this story here? Because they're not intending it to be chronological. They're intending it to be thematic. They're intending to link what this woman did when she poured precious, perfume over Jesus' head and putting it right up next to Judas Iscariot taking the 30 pieces of silver and saying, here, I'll put a price on Jesus' head. They want us to look at those two things together. They want to see how the woman valued Jesus right up against how Judas valued Jesus. And that makes me think this. It makes me think the gospel writers and the Holy Spirit who inspired them want us to consider today when we look at these 11 verses. How do I value Jesus? What is Jesus worth to me? And am I living my life in such a way That would cause people who put no value on Jesus to look at my life and say, what a waste. What a waste for you to live for Jesus. What a waste for you to love Jesus. You are wasting your life. Friend, to a person who loves Jesus, that kind of question like this woman received should be an incredible compliment that the value I place on Jesus of Nazareth is so high that others around me who don't find him that valuable say, what a waste. The title of the message this morning is simply this. What is Jesus worth? What is Jesus worth? And I hope when we answer that question for ourselves today, we will look at our own life and our own acts of service and devotion toward Jesus And answer the question for ourselves. What is Jesus worth to me? Let's start first of all by what I'm going to call the extravagant act. The act of this woman that is at the center of this story. Now just for context, you look with me at verse number one of chapter 14. We'll cover these two verses, Lord willing, next week. But I just want us to give a a flavor of these things. After two days was the feast of the Passover. That is to say, in two days, the Passover feast would be occurring. And of unleavened bread. These were two separate feasts. We'll learn about this a little bit more next week. But really, there would be a Passover feast where they would have the Passover meal celebrating what God did in bringing his people of Israel out of Egypt the bondage of slavery that's recorded in the book of Exodus. And then there would be a seven-day feast of unleavened bread immediately after the Passover when they would only eat unleavened bread in order to celebrate God's deliverance. So there's the feast of Passover falling on a day, and then there was a seven-day feast of this unleavened bread. Mark is just giving us this background for those of us who aren't very familiar with Jewish culture and religion. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft. That's by trickery. They wanted to arrest Jesus, but they wanted to do it secretly, privately, with a trick. Why? Why? They wanted to take him and put him to death. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. Again, we'll learn a little more about this next week. But Jerusalem was so crowded with people ready to celebrate the Passover, Hundreds of thousands of people, if literally not millions of people, crowded into the old city of Jerusalem for this Passover feast. And they were worried that if they publicly arrested Jesus, what was going to happen for the people who saw him as a miracle worker and a prophet? There'd be a riot. You could have hundreds of thousands of people rioting in the city. And they say, not that. So what was the solution? We have to to arrest him secretly, right? Well, how are they going to know where to arrest Jesus secretly? How are they going to find him? Well, that's where Judas came in. Okay? You're starting to see the things come together. Where did they end up arresting him? By night, in a private garden, in a little garden, where no crowds were. You see everything coming together? We'll talk about this more as we work through this chapter together. Well, so now we're going to go back in time. Again, this is not chronological. It's thematic. We're just, Mark is going to bring in this story here of Jesus only a few days prior. And in verse 3, he says, And being in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper. Now, where was Bethany? Bethany was about two miles southeast of Jerusalem. Jesus would go there and stay at night. You could just walk there from the city of Jerusalem and Jesus would be staying there. It was here that he raised Lazarus from the dead. You can read about this in John chapter 11 if you just are looking to compare the stories here. And the, the, there's going to be a feast thrown for him. There's going to be a celebration. Lazarus has been raised from the dead by Jesus' miracle working power and his family is throwing a feast and it's at the house of a guy named Simon. Simon. Now, there were tons of Simons in that day. They were all over the place. What is this guy called? Simon the leper. Now, you say, why is he called Simon the leper? Well, it couldn't have been that he was a leper. How do we know that? Because if he were a leper still, what would have happened? He would have been out, an outcast, out of the city. You wouldn't have come into the presence of a leper. So, most likely, this was a man who was a leper. Now, why do you think it's most likely that he was throwing a party for Jesus? How do you think he didn't become a leper? Is it guessing too much to say Jesus might have had something to do with that? Is, is that too much speculation? I don't think so. I think this is likely a man who Jesus healed, and he st- was still known as Simon the leper because of his history, and yet now Jesus is coming into his house and they're throwing a feast. We saw from John chapter 12, Martha was busily working away. If you know the character Martha in the Bible, you always see her hard at work. She's always doing the serving things. And she's hard at work. And what is Mary doing? Well, we're going to read about it. This woman isn't named in this story in the Mark 14 version. In John 12, she's named as Mary. Now notice... As Jesus is sitting at meat, he's sitting at the table, and in that day, you would recline while you ate. You would recline on an elbow. You'd rest on an elbow. They had these Ottomans that you'd be leaning in toward the table, and you'd simply be taking food and eating it, like, with one hand. So you just have to imagine a very different cultural experience than sitting around the big dining room table like we have today. And so as Jesus is literally reclining... At the table, this woman, it says, who we know to be Mary, having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. So the scene here is we're at a dinner party, and a woman comes up, and she's got a a bottle of perfume. Now, you need to understand what this means when it says she has an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard. What is reflected here in the Greek is that this is literally pure nard. I don't know, have you ever heard of nard before? Nard is the product of a plant that grows in the north of India near the Himalayan mountains. Now that alone tells you something. If this was in Israel, if this was near Jerusalem in the time of Jesus, it was precious, because it had been transported in a very long distance from the north of India. In fact, nard, I understand, is still used in aromatic or or, or kind of perfumes today. It's a very fragrant oil that was an extraordinarily expensive perfume. And it was in an alabaster box. Imagine some kind of bottle, maybe with a long kind of decorative neck that was on it, that clearly could be broken. And it, what, what, what scholars tell us is that it was common in that day when you would walk into a dinner party, someone might wash your feet and they might put a couple drops of perfume on your feet. Well, why? Because it was a hot culture and we didn't have the same kind of sanitation that we do today. Your feet would stink. And so you'd come into a dinner party, and you'd be reclining with your feet up. Let's make sure those puppies are clean, okay? Let's make sure they smell okay. And so you walk into the house, and you put a couple drops of perfume, okay? That's the culture. This woman greets Jesus. She takes the whole bottle, and she pours it over his head, John 12 tells us that she also poured it on his feet and then took her hair and was, like, using it as a towel. For one, this would be pretty scandalous in some way. But in another way, can you just imagine this entire bottle? I, I, I heard one pastor describe it. I didn't confirm it. A pound of this stuff would maybe be, like, the size of a Coke can. Just imagine, like, a Coke can's worth of precious perfume. And pouring it all over someone. Now, have you ever met someone who really, really, really likes perfume? And have you noticed that it follows that you can follow them with your nose like a bloodhound wherever they go? Uh, I, 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 this is this is bad. But there, I, I used to have a coworker, and she was she was from the south, and she wore a lot of perfume, and you literally could tell wherever she had been. It was like you'd get in the elevator, and you're like, "Yep." She was here not too long ago. It was very, very pungent. Can you imagine the smell that would have immediately permeated the house? John 12 says it filled the house. Like literally that overwhelming smell of an entire bottle of perfume getting poured over someone's head. I mean, literally, people would have been walking away from that dinner party and the smell would have still been on them. They would have walked into their house and someone would have been saying, "Uh, where were you? (laughs) Well, let me tell you what Mary did. Okay? So that's the idea. She pours a whole bottle of perfume like a Coke can over Jesus' head and over his feet. But here's the thing that really is, is remarkable about this. What, what it said here, and Judas is the one who, who tells us the value of this perfume. Mark says it was very precious. And what Ju- Judas says is that it might have been sold for more than 300 pence or denarii. Now, what are denarii? Denarii was just the common coin, the common Roman coin of the day. And when you worked an ordinary day of wages, you got one of those coins. It was just like the minimum wage for a day's work. Now, what's the minimum wage around here? It it keeps on going up. Some places it's $15 an hour, and some places it's considerably less. I just want you to imagine 300 days' worth of money. Now, put that into our terms today. What would someone who's working at the minimum wage make if they worked nearly an entire year? $20,000? $25,000? Maybe $30,000? Okay, now now you've got the idea. I want you to imagine you having a bottle of perfume that is worth about $25,000. And Jesus comes over to your house, and you don't just put a couple drops on him. I can see us doing that, right? Sure, Jesus, I'm going to take what's most precious to me, and I'm going to make sure I put some of it on you. No, she breaks the entire bottle, so that means she can never use it again. It's gone. She breaks the bottle. And then she pours the entire thing over his head and over his feet. $25,000, again, if you're just talking about our money, gone! Now, there's one more thing. You say, okay, well, maybe she was super rich. Okay, maybe money just wasn't a big thing for her. This is the best guess we have. What scholars would tell us is this was almost certainly something that was maybe, that could have been her most priceless heirloom that she possessed in her entire family that had been perhaps passed down across generations. I mean, this kind of thing would have been so unbelievably precious to her. In fact, I heard it said that there were two purposes this might have been, that this might have been in her life. One, one thing that this might have been used for is as part of her dowry. When she got married. That kind of precious item. But one other thing. If she had never been married. Do you know what this likely would have been? It likely would have been to anoint her body at her death. This might have been the priceless perfume that would have been used to care for her at her death. As kind of the embalming and grieving process. She is taking what is most precious to her and pouring it in one act on the head of Jesus. Now, that is when we should all of us step back and start to understand why not just Judas, but it says some of the disciples said, why did you waste this? Right? Don't, don't miss why they're saying that. Because let's be honest, you and I might have said that, I mean, seriously. If one of, if someone came in and took twenty five thousand dollars worth of something and and did it and just it they just consumed it in one act, wouldn't all of you be saying, "Well, could you have put it to some other purpose?" I mean, if someone came into our church parking lot today and built a bonfire of $100 bills at a $25,000 cost and lit it on fire and say, I'm sacrificing it to the Lord, how many of us would have been said, you know, the alms box could have used a little bit of that, don't you think? I mean, couldn't couldn't the offering plate have, have received some? I mean, think about the homeless walking around. Couldn't you have done something other than that? It's a totally natural response. And this is exactly what they say. Notice verse 4 and there were some that had indignation within themselves. That literally means they were fired up. They were, they were a little angry. They started harumphing, sniffing their nose, coughing a little bit. <clears throat> They said, why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence or denarii and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. They started muttering about her. Now, I want us to see not just this act, but notice secondly and briefly Jesus' approval. Jesus is not concerned about what these guys are saying. He doesn't really care about what their commentary is. This woman had given an extraordinarily sacrificial act. She had given a very costly act in terms of not only her own financial resources, but also the approval of others. She starts getting criticized. She starts getting socially rejected, ostracized because of what she's done. And notice how Jesus responds. Jesus said, let her alone. Literally, leave her be. Quiet. He's not going to have any of this criticism. Why trouble ye her? Why are you bugging her? She hath wrought or worked a good work on me. Now you need to understand this word good here. He's not just referring to something that is morally good. In fact, if you were to look this up in Strong's Concordance, you would see a word that keeps on, a synonym that keeps on coming over and over. Do you know what that word is? Beautiful. Lovely. Do you know what Jesus was literally saying to his disciples? You're criticizing her for wasting this. Do you know what I think about it? I think she did something beautiful. I think she did something lovely toward me. Wow, we got to change our expectations, right? Did she waste it? Jesus says, no, she didn't waste it. She did something beautiful by pouring something that much, that value, on me. Notice verse 7. He says, for ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever you will, whenever you want, ye may do them good. But me, ye have not always. Now, let's just step back and think about it for just a moment here. Jesus seems to be referencing what the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 15, that there will always be poor in the world. There will always be. And Jesus is not for a single moment saying that we shouldn't care about the poor. It is one of the fundamental biblical and moral obligations of any Christian to be concerned about caring for those who are, who, who are poor, who are impoverished. In fact, listen to what Deuteronomy 15 actually says. Verse 11 says, For the poor shall never cease out of the land. Therefore I command thee That's God's command. He's the one talking. I command thee, saying, thou shalt open thine hand wide unto thy brother, to thy poor, and to thy needy in thy land. I don't want you being stingy. I don't want you having a tight fist over your own money. I want you being generous to the people who are poor. So do not listen to Jesus' words here to say, you don't need to be concerned about the poor. They're always going to be around. That's not what he's talking about. Jesus came to give himself, in particular to the poor, to those who were societally rejected, who were on the outskirts of society. That's not what he's saying. What is he saying? He's making a simple point. For this woman, it was now or it was never. This dear woman Mary, he's saying, she she will have many more opportunities to give to the poor. And I want that. You disciples, you will have many more opportunities to give to the poor generously like God wants. But me, I'm not going to be here much longer. In fact, in how many days was Jesus going to die? Two. He was at the end of his earthly life. She is not going to have me always around to express her love for me like this. Leave her alone. She did something beautiful when she sacrificed this for me. Jesus is correcting their thinking. He's correcting them not to to abandon the poor. No, because this was really just a pretext for, for Judas in the first place. Do you think Judas cared about the poor? No, do you know what John chapter 12 tells us? He, Judas said, why not the poor? Why not give it to the poor? Not because he cared about the poor, but if you'll, you can go look at it in your own time. Because he held the bag. He held their money supply. He was their treasurer. And he was a thief. Do you know why he wanted that? He would have loved it if that woman had gone and sold it for $25,000 and come and given it to Jesus in the bag. Why? Because then he could have gotten what he wanted out of that bag. He was a thief. He didn't care about the poor, and Jesus knew it. Jesus was nonetheless correcting the criticisms of her. Now, notice what this is. Notice verse 8. He says, she hath done what she could. Oh, man, there's a whole sermon. I actually preached a whole sermon on this verse, on that phrase once. And I just want to say this. Whatever you can do, that's what Jesus expects. He doesn't expect more than you can do. She's done what she, could. what she could. What did she have? She had an alabaster box of ointment. That's what she could do. Don't compare yourself to what other people are doing. Focus on what God wants you to do, what you can do, and then do that, and you'll get Jesus' commendation. Okay, that's another sermon. You can go find that online. She had done what she could. She is come aforehand or beforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Jesus knew what she was doing. Now, many commentators look at this and they say, she couldn't possibly have known that she was anointing Jesus' body for his death. I don't know, friends. It seems like that's exactly what Jesus says. She is come to do that. I think that even though these disciples were so thick-headed when Jesus told them he was going to die, she wasn't. She knew he was going to die. And her heart of love said, I'm going to do whatever I can to show Jesus how much I love him before he dies. And she took what might have been used, what might have been poured over her lifeless body one day as an act of memory for her. And she said, no, there's someone far more precious to me to give this entirely to. And she poured it over him. You see why Jesus said that was beautiful. That was lovely what she did. She has come to specially recognize my death, my impending death, out of her love for me. Now, notice what Jesus said. Verily I say unto you, verse 9, truly, I want you guys to get this. Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. There's some tombstones that if you were to go into this city and into this state, you would find memorials dating back hundreds of years for great people who have died. Great statues have been built as memorials. Can you imagine this memorial that 2,000 years later we are still speaking of this woman and what she did? How many hundreds of millions of Christians, whenever you came to them and you said, you remember that woman in that alabaster box? You said, I, I remember. Yeah, let me tell you the story of what she did. Literally, she is one of the most famous people who ever lived. Who ever lived. And Jesus said exactly that. Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the entire world, what she did, this beautiful thing that she did, is going to be held up as a memorial to remember her. Now, you might just let that slip past for one moment or go over your head and say, oh, that's cool. That's nice. That's a memorial. But I want you to focus in on something very important that Jesus said. He said that wherever this gospel shall be preached. Now, why did he say that? Wherever this gospel is preached. Friends, Mark 1 begins by saying this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. What have we learned the Gospel is in the, Mark, in the book of Mark? What's at the heart of the Gospel? The heart of the Gospel is that there is a kingdom of God in which the King Himself, Jesus, has come to reign And He invites you to come into His kingdom by believing in Him and receiving the forgiveness of your sins and everlasting life with Him. He says, wherever this gospel of this kingdom is going to be preached, you're going to remember her with it. Now this is where I want to pause and ask why. What is the connection between what this woman did and the gospel of the kingdom that is being preached across the entire world? What's the connection? Thirdly, let's look as we close here at what I'm going to call an assessment. An assessment. What was this woman's value that she placed on Jesus? Well, you can say, well, that's easy. She placed whatever the monetary value of that alabaster box was. Yes, she did. But she did it in a different way. It's not like she came and wrote a check and put it in the offering plate. She, she, in that sense, she abandoned it. She literally, in that sense, wasted it. She took all of it and poured it on his head. It was an extravagant act of love. She was saying to Jesus, you are more precious than what is most precious to me. Do you hear that? You are more precious to me than what is most precious to me. And she did it because she knew that he would die, that he would be buried, that he, in a short period of time, would be departing, and she gave it to him as a sacrifice. The value she placed on him was very simple. You are more precious to me than anything else I have. No wonder it was beautiful. We hear stories about this in our secular culture. I've told you the story before about the man in Minnesota who had a, a father, who was a father of children and his child went off and fell off a bridge into a river. And without a second thought, he jumped over the bridge into the river, rescued his boy and died. In the process, you say that means that boy was it was inestimably precious to him. He was willing to give what was most precious to himself, his own life, to save his little boy. Yes, that boy was precious to him, and we say yes, indeed. That's what's going on here. This woman is testifying how precious Jesus is to her, and notice how her value of Jesus connects into the gospel wasn't it so interesting that Judas was the one who was saying you should have gone and given it to the poor do you know what this woman might have said honestly i did i did you say pastor peter what do you mean by that i mean this i mean that the gospel tells us that though jesus was rich yet for your sakes he became poor that you through his poverty might be rich What does the gospel teach you? The gospel teaches all of us that Jesus came down from heaven as the king in God's kingdom, not to be embraced and worshiped by everyone who was surrounding him, but to be rejected, to be persecuted, to be tortured, to be killed, to be hung on a cross. Why? So that you and I might receive his riches so that we might have the forgiveness of our sins, sins that we commit willfully against God, knowingly against God. We, the ones who deserve God's punishment, who deserve God's judgment, frankly, friends, yes, who deserve to go to hell. That's you and me. That's what the Bible says. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. The gospel tells us that Jesus came into our sin. He came into our brokenness. He took it all upon Himself. He gave Himself a sacrifice for God, making Himself poor, so that you, in His death and resurrection, might become rich. That is the gospel. And now this woman comes seeing perhaps dimly the sacrifice that was waiting for Jesus on the cross and she takes what is most precious to her and she pours it on him as a testimony of her value that she placed on him. The gospel, the gospel of an inestimably precious Jesus. You know, friend, this is what you and I testify when we come to church here this morning. First Peter 2 says these words, to you which believe, he is precious. Do you know that's what faith looks like? Faith looks like believing a Savior who came to earth to die for your sins and saying, Jesus, you are precious to me. You mean more to me than anything else I have. You are valuable. That's what faith looks like to you who believe. He is precious. Well, what about this incredible contrast with Judas? How did Judas view Jesus? Judas viewed Jesus not as someone who is worth lavishing the most precious thing you have on Judas viewed Jesus as something only that he could take from. It was only a bank that he could cash out. And when he saw that Jesus was not on the path to glory and to an immediate earthly kingdom, Judas says, I'm going to go see what I can cash out of this. What was Jesus worth to Judas? Only what Judas could get out of him. What What was Jesus worth to Mary? The most precious thing that she could give. And what was Jesus worth to Judas? Only the most that he could cash out. And do you know, friends, that's the difference between heaven and hell. It's the difference between the person who comes to Jesus and bows before him and trusts in him as the most precious thing that they have in life or in death and says, Jesus, you are precious to me because I believe who you are, who the Bible says you are. And it's the kind of person who comes and he perhaps even sits in a church on Sunday mornings and they only view Jesus as a kind of lottery ticket. Something maybe if the priest prays over me when I die, maybe I'll, I'll get a lottery ticket up to heaven. What can I get out of Jesus? If it's socially respectable to be a Christian, I'll be a Christian. But if it's not, well, you won't find me professing the name of Christ. Jesus is only a token. He's only something that they can glean from. You see, to that kind of person... To whom Jesus is not precious. There's no Bible faith. There's no eternal life. There's no forgiveness of sins. That kind of person does not experience the kingdom in the first place. And that's why, above all friends, I want to ask you this morning, what is Jesus worth to you? What is he worth to you? Is he worth what is most precious? Is he worth your life? Is he worth your obedience? Is he worth your time? Is he worth your Saturday mornings? Is he worth your evenings? Is he worth everything? I want us, as we close here, to reflect on what the book of Revelation says in Revelation chapter 5. The heavens are opened and and John himself receives a picture of, Of what heaven is actually like. And listen to these words that are being spoken of Jesus in verse 12. Oh, the many angels and the people surrounding the throne, numbering 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, are saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb. Worth. It's talking about his value. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, heard I saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and under the Lamb forever and ever. Friends, those who are in heaven today see and savor the value of Jesus Christ and our experience in heaven forever will be seeing how precious Jesus is and worshiping him in love and adoration forever. And so I close this morning where I began. What is Jesus worth to you? Have you trusted in him for your eternal life? Have you entered the kingdom by giving, by trusting in him and giving yourself to him? Oh, I pray today, friends that your valuing of Jesus would look very much like Mary's and very little like Judas's.